Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. We appreciate everybody that's tuning in. Uh, go check us out. We're up on YouTube. It's real easy to find. All you got to do is punch in the Big Honker Podcast, and there we are. We are now Skyping with all of our guests, so you can see them, and it's been a lot of fun. It's added uh, another dimension to the podcast, and people are seeming to like it. So go check it out there, the Big Honker Podcast. If you like it, subscribe to it. Uh, you know, normal shit that you hear from people that have a YouTube channel. Like it, subscribe to it. Um, this podcast is brought to you by the one and only Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Turkey season is just around the corner, and we have just a few dates left. Shoot your Rio with me. At the Big Honker Lodge. Personally, get a hunt with the world-famous Andy Shaver. The one and only world-famous Andy Shaver. I'll call on a bird for you. It is a good time. It's always nice that time of year down here in Texas. Get out of the house. Get out in Mother Nature. Let's chase some gobblers together. 940-658-3172. Also, <clears throat> we are brought to you by Foul Bandits. They got a promo code migration. You can save 20% off of... Swag that you're going to need for the field. Hats, hoodies, decals, whatever you're looking for, those folks over at Foul Bandits can hook you up no problem, and you can save a little bit of do-re-me by using the promo code MIGRATION, 20% off. That lets them know that we sent you. Outfitting you for the field is their motto over at Foul Bandits, so go check them out. They got some good-looking stuff, foulbandits.com. Also, we're brought to you by Gundog Outdoors. Keep your pooch safe with the patented quick release system. Um, promo code is Big Honker. That will save you money on all items on their website, and Trump 2020 will save you 20% off of their field trauma kit. Um, if you're a hunter, it doesn't matter if your dog is the best dog in the world. I would recommend putting the quick release system on them just because. When it's go time, you don't have to worry about your four-legged friend breaking and uh, you know potentially potentially having an accident out there. Keep them right by your side all the time. It's just an extra safety measure that uh, that you can put into place whenever you're out in the field. All it takes is one time and uh, ruin your day. And I think every hunting bag and truck needs the field trauma kit. Go check them out, Gundog Outdoors. Also, we're brought to you by Dirty Duck Coffee. If your coffee sucks. You know the rest. It ain't duck. Texas coffee, isn't it? Dirty Duck coffee? Yes, it is. Bernie, Texas, right down by San Antonio. It's what we drink out here every morning, dirtyduckcoffee.com. Um, Trump 2020 saves you some money on their uh, on their coffee line. I personally, I like the high-velocity caffeine roast. Hits me in all the funny places, and uh, it's how I start my day. They've also got some good-looking apparel. Got a good-looking shirt out there that I really like, so go check them out at uh, Dirty Duck Coffee, and you can start your day with a duck every morning just like we do here at Stanford Hunting Outfitters. Also, we're brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. It's time to get skinny. It's 2021. You've been putting all those decoys away, and I'm sure they're taking up a bunch of space. If you had them in bags nicely organized, you can just put them, you can put them up, not take up a whole lot of room, and you're organized for next year. That way when hunting season rolls around, you're not having to pull decoys out here, there, and near, far, and all that other stuff. Pack them up. Put them away. You're ready for next year. Divebombindustries.com. They've also got a, uh, they're doing their first calling contest in June. So be looking for that. Divebombindustries.com. 
We're also brought to you by Pacific Calls, the boys up there. Uh, they've rebranded their turkey line. So if you're a turkey hunter like me and you're looking for a badass mouth call or a slate call or whatever, they got you covered. BHP 25 will save you 25%. They're also retooling uh, their Speckabelly call, and they're also playing with the 206. So look for that later this summer. We really, really enjoy having them uh, being partners of the show. They put out an incredible product. Everybody loves it. So go check them out at PacificCustomCalls.com. Also, we're brought to you by Boss Shot Shells, all-American-made, bismuth, copper-plated bismuth, hits like a freight train. All it takes is one. They got their turkey line going right now, Boss Tom. So if you are hitting the turkey woods. You better look, order it quick. You better order it quick because they, Brandon said that they're not going to make just a whole bunch of it. So if you're wanting Boss Tom, go get it right now. And also, don't wait until the last minute to make your ammunition orders, shotgun shell orders for this coming waterfowl season because world we live in right now, there's some shortages. So don't wait until the last minute. Get it ordered now. Put it away. BossShotShells.com. I would recommend buying your shotgun shells. Whatever you shoot for waterfowl season, break it into 20% and order 20% next month and for the next five months. That way you get it all bought by August. Right. <clears throat> Makes sense. That's what I do. <clears throat> Also, we're brought to you by Athletic Brewing Company. It's a non-alcoholic brew. You can have you a beer, feel good the next day. Doesn't have the compromise. Doesn't have the hangover the next day. They promise to use high-quality, all-natural ingredients to create great-tasting brews for all beer-loving people. They strive to create brews suitable for everybody and every occasion. If you want to keep a clear head and drink healthier, they're here for you. AthleticBrewingCompany.com is the way to go. You can have all of them that you want. Not even feel bad. Uh, they saw a void in the market, and they pounced on it. So they do a lot with uh, the Spartan races. And uh, for people that, uh, you know, like to have a beer at night but have to get up the next day and perform, Athletic Brewing Company is the way to go. So check them out at athleticbrewing.com. You uh, you know, they, they there was a hole in the market. You know what? I can just run Last month's there. Um, we're also brought to you by Lucky Duck. The best blind on the market is the 2x4 blind made by Lucky Duck. I love it. Fits four grown men without any, without any issues. Um, they've also got the best spinners, in my opinion, that are on the market. You ought to look at Lucky Duck if you're needing a, uh, a varmint call because they got a good one. Got a couple good ones. Couple, they got some options for you over there at Lucky Duck. Or if you're wanting uh, wanting to beef up your spread, especially if you're a duck hunter, I would recommend getting the waterproof spinner that they have. Runs off a remote. Easy peasy. Set it up with a remote. Turn it on and off. Away you go. That is at LuckyDuck.com. Also, we're brought to you by Blindgrass. If you are tired of always having to rebrush your A-frames, I suggest going over to Blindgrass.com. It is a synthetic blend. They have spent years perfecting the color of their grass. It will not rot. You can tie it onto your A-frame, and it won't fall apart. So, Blindgrass.com. You can get it in bundles, or you can get it in uh, sheets. So, they're working on some things for us for us guys in the A-frame. So um, be looking for that at the end of the summer. Blindgrass.com. 
if you're tired of having to rebrush your A-frame every day. Also, we're brought to you by William and Chris Wines. Texas-made wine made down there in high Texas. It's beautiful. Pair it with a steak from 14 Cattle Co., and away you go. Panties drop whenever you get the skeleton key. You can find it at Whole Foods, Central Markets, all those good places, and uh, you won't be disappointed. Get the skeleton key. I love it. It's the way to go. Also, we're brought to you by 14 Cattle Co. Get you a whole beef, half beef, quarter beef. We're still in uncertain times, and it will pay to have uh, food in the freezer if shit hits the fan. Plus, it's it's cheaper than you know what you'd pay at the store. So, really, win win. It's like seven bucks a pound or something like that for steak, hamburger meat, all that good stuff. 14cattleco.com. They'll send you a kill list. You can get everything that you want. Customize your order. And uh, it's all naturally, all naturally fed. No, no added shenanigans over there at 14 Cattle Company. So check them out, 14cattleco.com. I think that's everybody. All right, this episode of the podcast, we're joined by California waterfowl biologist Brian Huber. You can follow him on Instagram at birdieologist. He's a bird banding machine. He bands pintails out the wazoo, speckle bellies. It's a lot of fun to uh, follow along with him on Instagram. We, uh, we talk about a lot of stuff. Pintail numbers are going through the roof. Speckle belly numbers are going through the roof. It's a fun podcast. We hope that you enjoy it. Here he is, Brian Huber. Jeffro, bingo. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast brought to you by William and Chris Wines. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver, and it is a windy day here in Texas, Jeff. Yes, it is. Jeff Stanfield. World famous Andy Shaver. Good being on air with you again. Every fucking episode. Got to throw that in. Had a guy call today and tell me that. Mm-hmm. Actually, he said, am I speaking to the world-famous Jeff Stanford? I said, you mean Andy Shaver? He said, no, I have a son Andy's age, and I know how full of shit Andy is because my son's that way. Nice, Jeff. It's, well, I'm just calling it the way. It's what he said, didn't he, Harry? Yep. It's about a million degrees in this place. It you is hotter than shit in here. I'm telling you, you're the one left the heater on in here. Oh. And I hadn't turned it off. It's I've hot. been working out so I can show off my guns. Okay, well, you go ahead and get them muscles. All right, on the line with us today. We have the world-famous Brian Huber. You are a bird biologist, is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, waterfowl biologist. With the state of California, right? You are in California, correct? Yep. Yeah, California. uh, Work for California Waterfowl. You've got to be. I was looking at your Instagram, and shit, just like two days ago, you're on another podcast. Is everybody knocking on your door right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's funny. We just kind of wrapped up our probably our most exciting project, and so that always gets a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that just want to chat about what we're doing and the, the whole biology behind what we're doing and, and all the interesting, fun stuff I get to do and call a job. So. That is, yeah, I mean, it looks, like, it looks like a very, very entertaining job. It doesn't look like two days are the same very often. You're always kind of doing yeah. something else. No, we kind of go with the flow and uh, whatever – 
you know, just based on what the birds are doing here in California, we're just switching up projects, switching up uh, what we're doing and what we're chasing. And uh, yeah, it keeps you on your toes. Definitely keeps you busy. But uh, for me, I'm just the type of person that likes being outside doing that stuff anyway. So it's just a perfect fit for me. How often do y'all ban birds? Because that's what got me watching you on Insta is all your bird banding pictures. Do y'all bird year? Do y'all ban year round up there? Or just we, we do more or less. So, um, we kind of, like I was saying, we kind of chase the birds and what they're doing. So during different times of the year, we're chasing different birds. So uh, right now we just wrapped up, we call it our postseason pintail project. And so we're targeting pintail while they're, while they're still here right after duck season. And then those birds are going to migrate. Um, they're already starting to push out, but there's still a lot left. The problem is all the water starting to dry up. Um, so we chase pintails during that time of year. Um, now we're kind of shifting. Most people don't realize that California has a really significant mallard population. Um, it kind of hovers around anywhere from like 250 up to 500,000 birds, uh, just local in California. So that gives us a lot of opportunity to um, catch them on the nest, do some nesting studies in California, um, kind of chase our local birds when they're molting after they've gone through their um, breeding cycle and they start molting. Um, catch the young birds in the brood water and we also have a really big wood duck program which i'm the coordinator of and so we have um, projects across the entire state wood duck boxes all over um, i kind of help manage the volunteers and it's a it's the largest volunteer-based conservation um, project that i'm aware of in the country so there's over 600 volunteers that go out and manage these boxes and we ban the wood ducks there so that's kind of our spring um, summer, we shift to our local mallards. We're catching them as they're molting. We're driving around in airboats. We're scooping them up at night, spotlighting them. Um, and then by that time, uh, end of August, early September, we already have enough pintail showing up where we can start targeting them again right before um, duck season. And then uh, duck season is surprisingly, you know, if you're a duck hunter, it works out pretty good. That's kind of your time off. So um, it works out really good for me. That's when we catch up on our paperwork our data entry all the stuff we're working on for the next year and just kind of kind of get everything grouped up together and then obviously enjoy some duck hunting now you said a minute ago that y'all have 250 to 500,000 uh mallards that are local birds do those get yep. do, do those get counted in the federal rigs when they talk about the bird population yeah they do so california has what we've uh, fought for in the flyway is the western mallard model so our mallard population and our limits are based off of the western population not necessarily tied to the continental population so that was a huge um just push for california you know so we our birds you know california shooting um 60 about 65 68 percent of our mallards are actually from california that we're shooting in the state so we're not getting like this big push up north like everybody kind of assumes. And so it, it really helps us kind of tie our our hunting seasons and stuff to more tied to our populations that we're seeing, you know. So when you're at Universal Studios or Disneyland and you see a couple hundred mallards around there, those mallards live and stay around that area their whole life. Yeah. Yep. Now, what's the population? What's it increase? Because I don't understand a lot about that. I know if a a pair of mallards go up north and they have a brood that you're looking at four to six to eight bird ducklings. Am I correct on that? Yeah, I think it's like 35% survival once they, um, once they're done like fledging, like that's usually what they, they come out. I mean, a typical mallard brood is going to be like 12 to 14 eggs. So yeah, you're right on about three, three to four ducklings actually survive. So is, so in, in California, so if y'all have got a half million now, are y'all going to have six or 700,000 next year? 
or is it going to go up just like 10 percent yeah it doesn't you know it doesn't seem to trend that way it, it's more of like the breeding pair survey right so we're 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 taking a survey of the the birds breeding there and so we're not really counting like that next year's young so then the next survey will come and we'll be counting the pairs and breeding pairs again so it's not it's not necessarily like a, a population count i guess but it's like an estimate off of the breeding pairs what would you say so when you're when you're doing the count you're you're counting the adults not the offspring because that's just the time of year where, where it's easy to count them so what do you think the real population would be then Oh, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, the survey is kind of designed to kind of, kind of. Um, I've been lucky to to fly the survey in a helicopter. So you're flying in a helicopter and you're counting ducks out the window. Um, and we're not, you know, it's it's an index, right? So when we say that this is the population, we're not saying like that's exactly how many birds are there. We're saying that's how many birds we're counting in our transects. And when you have consistent transects like that, it just gives you data that you can look back on, you know, like if you're trying to chase every duck in the state, it's just impossible. Right. You know? So you have to do it systematically and, and count those birds in a way that you're counting the same area every year. Like, yeah, you're going to miss birds some years, you're going to catch them the other years, but it's just, it's an index of what, what we're seeing out there. Well, I bet the damn um, drone sure do make it easier for y'all then. Yeah. Um, we haven't, haven't gotten it to the breeding survey, but definitely when we're doing like smaller level brood survey stuff, um, the drones are amazing. We've, we've tinkered with uh, using drones with the thermal imaging. And so when we're doing like nest searching, we're trying to use the drones and detect the heat signature of the birds on their nest. And we've had some success, but the real success is when we're counting broods in a pond because the heat difference from a duck in the water is so different that it shows right. up really, really well. And uh, yeah, the technology, I mean, it's hard to keep up with all the new stuff that's out there and all the all the the studies and stuff that are going on. But yeah, the drones are definitely, definitely cool and definitely a lot of potential to help us do our job better. So now correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that y'all, so y'all basically get like a piece of like a section of land and you count the ducks in that section, right? Like a little quadrant type deal. Is that how you come up with your numbers? Yeah. So it's a little different. California does it on transect. So a lot of like, um, like up in Canada, um, I'm sure you guys are more familiar, but it's more of a grid pattern on the right. roads. And so they can actually do it from the from the roads. But in California, the way we do it in some other places is you basically have a transect and you have a, a, a airplane that flies that transect. Right. And so the airplane's going pretty fast and there's biologists and they're counting and they're counting what they see 200 yards out on each side. Right. And so they go through and they count. And they get their numbers. And then what we used to do, um, we still do it for Nevada. COVID kind of put a hamper on it. We don't do it for California. They tried to do it all in-house now. Um, but then you have a helicopter fly afterwards, and they do a sample of those. And you're assuming that in the plane, they're going to miss a few. And the helicopter comes through and counts. And, I mean, a helicopter, you can stop on a dime. You can turn. But you're still flying the same transect. You're just going slower. And so you're assuming that you're counting the majority of those birds. And so it's called a visibility correction factor. And so it's basically just a, a, a way to, to figure out how much air there is in your survey and kind of correct for that. Um, but yeah, you're flying around, you're counting pairs of ducks or single drake mallards or drake um, anything. And that uh, if you typically see a single drake sitting in a pond, that traditionally means that there's a hen nesting nearby. Um, and we do most of these surveys like in the beginning of May when they're just kind of getting into nesting season and stuff. So you're either counting pairs or single birds 
and then they adjust those numbers to come out with the, the population estimate. I don't know how the hell you count that fast because our fucking pheasant guide can't count pheasants in a pen and get an accurate number. So <laughs> no like my, my hat is off to you to get anything that, that resembles uh, an accurate number. What? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, uh, like I said, it's not perfect. You know, I mean, a lot of it is just practice and, and estimating. Um, it's it's easy when you're flying in some areas and it's like one pair of mallards, single drake mallard. But when you come up to like a big group, then it's really tough, you know, to try and count them and then speciate too. You know, we have yeah. gadwall, cinnamon teal, um, you know, some divers and stuff. So you're trying to count those and maintain, you know, your pair counts and everything. So yeah, it gets tough. It's not perfect, but it's the best system we have right now um, that I'm aware of to keep track of our populations, you know, from from viewing them. We were getting towards the end of the year. It was last year, and we do a release pheasant hunt. And our, we tell our pheasant guide, like, get a number. We need to know if we need to order more birds. Are we good on birds? Does Jeff need to sell more hunts? Does Jeff need to sell more hunts? Like, what's our situation? And this, this damn thing, it's not but about 10 feet wide and maybe... I don't well, know, 30 or 40 yards. No, it's about 10 yards wide and about 30 or 40 yards long. And he was off by like 200 birds. We would do a we would do a <laughs> hunt, and I'd say, we got 50 birds left, right? And he'd come back in, we got 150. And I'd sell another 60 bird hunt, and he'd come back in. I'd say, okay, well, we got 90 birds left. I counted, and we got 140 left. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? I said, well, how hard is math? Right that, that's exactly right. I would much. My dad was the exact opposite when he would do it. He'd come in and say, uh, "We're out of pheasants, and we got a two hundred. We got two hundred birds we need in the next four days." I'm like, "Shit!" So I'm on the phone to Kansas to get birds. Um, I want to talk to you about the banded part because that's what's yeah. very interesting. Do y'all do y'all do cannons and stuff? Is that or, or do y'all do more spotlighting and dip net? Well, it just it, it depends on what we're chasing. So, like um, for pintail, they're um, Pintail like to stay in large groups for the most part, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with California. Have you guys ever been out here? Yes, Jeff has. I've not had the pleasure for hunting or just no. Disneyland? I, I, I went was to Disneyland. You're right on. I went to Disneyland and Universal, and almost got shanked by Debo at the La Brea Tar Pit. Yes, I will not. But yeah, that's a whole different world than where I'm from in California. Most people don't really realize that, you know. But um, up here, it's all ag land. It's rice land. It's natural sinks, um, ducks everywhere, agriculture. Um, I would like to see so that part. Been, what was that? I would love to see that part of California again. I have no intentions of ever going to LA again. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't ever go down there. I make it a point not to go down there. But um, yeah, so basically what happens is we have these big rice fields that are flooded and the pintail congregate out there um, during the postseason, which is the season we just wrapped up. And the easiest way to get those is with rocket nets. Um, so what we'll do is we'll bait the edge of a rice field with uh, just we call it patty rice, but it's basically if you pulled the rice off the stock, what the rice would look like in the hole. And we pour a bunch of that bait out. Um, the birds get on it. We set it up. Uh, most people don't realize that you have to get the birds. I mean, we have to get these birds within like four to five feet of these nets because just the way they shoot out and they kind of hang up um, before you, so you can catch the birds. And so we target the pintail with that. Um, any kind of the goose trapping that we're doing um, after the season, we're using rocket nets. Um, the nesting stuff is a little tricky. Um, when we're, you're trying to catch them out around the nest, you, you blow the bird off, you mark the nest, and then you come back the next day with a fishing net, really. And you kind of figure out where she's escaping from, and you try and run up and uh, kind of catch her in the air or right on the nest with the fishing net. 
they do make some little traps that we've put out and we've been pretty successful with those. It's just kind of a, a trap that they walk in and uh, they can't figure out how to get out of. Um, and then the, the summer banding is when we shift. We don't really, we, we'll do rocket netting a little bit when we have a big congregation of mallards or something. Um, but we're during the summer, we're starting to use like our um, funnel traps, we call them. And it's more or less a minnow trap. You know, the best way to explain it, it's like a minnow trap for ducks. And you set it up where there's a funnel. You bait the funnel, the birds push in there, and then they, they can't figure out how to get out once they get in. Um, and that's kind of when they're molting and they're kind of stuck in a wetland area. Um, that same time of year, we'll do the night lighting. So we'll get in the airboats and uh, we'll wait until it's pitch black at night, nine o'clock at night. And we'll run around and start um, start the airboats up and we have big old spotlights. And you shine the light on the bird and it kind of stuns them. And the driver drives right up next to them and you scoop them up in a fishing net and throw them in a crate. And that's a real successful way to band a ton of birds. Um, if you have the crew um, and the water and the birds to do it. Um, so we'll do that. And then uh, we'll kind of transition back into the rocket netting for pintails again um, once they come back in. So those are kind of the main techniques that we use to catch them you, and you for different birds. You said they could they would walk in and they can't get out. I used to always hear that the, um, people down on the Texas coast and the Kunasses in Louisiana, they built a lockup. They would do they would put corn and they would dig a little ditch. And the ducks would walk into it, and they couldn't get out because they couldn't flip their wings to get out. Is it that same? I've heard of that. Yeah. I've heard of it. I've never tried it. That'd be funny to to try it just for the hell of it. But they, they say it works excellent. I just always thought, what? And they said, yeah, they walk in and they can't get out. So they can't use. Yeah. They can't jump. They can't fly to get out. So they're stuck. Yeah, um, no, it makes sense. Okay, my question. Another question I have, and I've always wanted to ask someone that that banded birds. How often do you find a bird that's been ban that's been banded before you banded it? Um, it, it depends. I mean, uh, for a while there, it was like with the pintail, um, it was almost, you could almost consistently count on every hundred birds, you'd get one recapture. And that, that, that ran true for a while. It's probably still pretty close to that. Um, mallards are probably a little bit, probably get a little bit more recaptures just cause we tend to band in the same areas. And so we're getting recaptures of our own from previous years. What's, what's really cool is uh, this, this whole winter site fidelity that's happening with these pintail. And uh, we've been trapping at this like exact location for the last, uh, shit, ever since I started, 12 years. And we, we get recaptures uh, from birds that we caught in that exact spot from previous years. You know, all the way back, I think the oldest was like eight years previous, we caught it in that same exact spot. So it's just these birds are going back to the same spots you know it's pretty crazy seeing that so when you catch a band the second the first time do you put a second band on it or is that not does not no man if i had a dollar for every time somebody asked me that on instagram i'd be rich but uh <laughs> i mean you, you really want to think of a band as like a social security number and you know there's no point in giving a bird two social security numbers so if it's already banded you already know um you can already read the band, then there's no re reason to put another band on there. You report, you, you take down the information and you still report it to the bird banding lab, uh, but there's no need to put another band. The only time that we will take the band off is if it's illegible, if you can't read the numbers. And I know that sucks from a hunter's perspective and trust me, I hate doing it, but that's just the protocol of banding. You know, part of our permit is um, pulling those bands off that are worn and then replacing them. And so that's, 
that sucks, but that's what we, we have to do. Do you ever uh, – w- w- what constitutes putting a 25 a 50 or $100 reward band on? So that's that's all part of kind of the harvest, um, the bird band report study. So they're basically you have the reward bands, um, and every every few years the the BBL decides to put reward bands out, and then uh, you know they they decide who they send those bands to. So when I first started, I think in two thousand nine, we did a bunch of the fifty dollar and the hundred dollar reward bands, um, but we haven't done them since. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they did a little more push because they uh, took the phone number off the band reporting, so you can't report through a phone now. So that's going to change the reporting rates. Um, old timers that don't know how to use the internet aren't going <laughs> to report bands, and so I wouldn't be surprised if there in the future there's going to be some more um, re- reward banding stuff going on. Now, why did they get rid of the number? Just trying to cut where they can. The, the phone uh, number. Yeah, phone they're, number. the federal government, you know, going through cutbacks, all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, having to have somebody man a phone all the time versus right. an email that you can, you know, store and get back to. Um, just a lot simpler method to do it. And, uh, yeah, it's just, just part of their protocol to cut back and, and try and kind of become current with the way people are dealing with the world now. You know, everything's over the Internet now. So I bet there was a lot just, of pushback from the old timers. God damn! I don't even have a computer. Right, yeah. got the jitterbug and they, phone. You know, a lot of those guys just throw their band in a jar and they don't even report them anyway. So, what what do you think the what do you think a, a roundabout number would be as to how many birds uh, bands get reported? And like you said, just go into a jar. Yeah, I think um, last I heard, I think it was around eighty to eighty-five percent are getting reported. Was what I remember from the last study. Um, it's it's somewhere around there. It might be off a little bit, but that's generally the typical typical reporting rate, I think. Yeah, because most guys are fucking band hungry anyway. So well, that, that's the, higher than what I thought. They want yeah, it is me too because I yeah. figured y'all would lose twenty to thirty percent just that you'd never recover. Yeah, but so we're we're basing it off of uh, so the way those re- reward bands work, right? Is um, you have basically the reward bands, and then you have another string that you're putting out at the same time. That's like your placebo, kind of your your um, um, your your test bands, right? So right. you can use those bands on that other string compared to the reporting the hundred dollar reward bands or whatever, and you can compare those reporting rates, and that's how they kind of determine those. That makes sense. That makes so they're sense. not you're not counting you're not really counting the ones that. Um, are dying in nature or in wild or whatever, you know, or getting eaten by eagles or anything. You're, you're actually going off the ratio of reporting versus non-reporting for the, hunters or recaptures or whatever. For the confused listener, that means if they banned 100, pe- 100 birds with reward bands and 100 without, that's where they get 80% from, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so uh, we assume 100% of those reward bands are going to get reported, more or less, and then the, the placebo bands um, – those ones, only eighty percent of those are getting reported. So that's the way you can kind of tell that ratio and get that get that reporting rate. We have some listeners that aren't real smart because they think Andy's world famous. So we I got some hosts that, that aren't real smart either. About fifty percent of our hosts aren't very damn smart either. Yes, that's, <laughs> I would agree with that one hundred percent. Yep. Hey, um, what's the what's the uh, weirdest bird that you've encountered? Um, man, there's been a couple the, we had a really cool mallard widgeon hybrid that we caught and we banded and that was pretty awesome. Well, that would Um, be a fucking trophy right there. Yeah. You know, the coolest part is that, um, this like 12 year old kid, I think at the time shot it. 
Oh, and it was it's such a cool story. You know, we with the California waterfowl, they did like a big segment on it. But this kid, um, you know, he shot this bird and he's like, his dad's like, go get it. And he's like, oh, it's a mallard. Oh, it's a widgeon. And it's like, it's a mallard widgeon. And his dad's <laughs> like, man, this kid's just excited. And then uh, he's like, it's banded. And his dad's like, yeah, right. You know, and thinking he's just messing with him. And then sure enough, like this kid brings back that, that bird that we caught and banded. And his dad was just blown away. It's a pretty neat story. So. Look, lucky little shit. <laughs> that, yeah. That but, is I mean, a it's trophy. crazy where these birds travel, you know. Um, we've we banded a pintail in March here in California. And in May of that same year, it was shot in like coastal Russia. No shit. Yeah, so it's just it's amazing. I was like, man, they can hunt in May and. That's what I was thinking. Up, but, there's no there's yeah. no regulations. They're just and I bet one's not the limit there. Probably shot with lead too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's weird. You know, I talked. Some biologist got in touch with me from over there. I think it was through Instagram, and it was pretty interesting. He's like, um, or actually, I think he reported the band, and I sent him an email just trying to find out more info. And he's like, dude, I I go from the broken Russian that I could understand. He's like we go to these towns, like these coastal towns, you know, and they're not like, I don't know. I kind of picture them as like just older towns, you know, they're not like very modern. And, uh, he's like, there's people like natives there with just lanyards full of bands that aren't reported, you know, and they're, they just surviving off those birds. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. Oh shit. There's your, there's your jar that, uh, nobody's reporting on right there, right there in Russia. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to these. Uh, I kind of coined the term zebra sprig, but there's these like interesting pintail we keep catching. This was the weirdest year. We caught uh, five of them, I think, this year. What is but that? But it's kind of this weird phenomenon that's going on. Um, we're catching these birds, and they look like a more or less like an immature male, but mm-hmm. they have female body parts inside. So when you sex them, you know, you pop out their cloaca and you examine them. There's no penis there, but they have like male characteristics coming in on their neck um male wings uh big sprig tail and but they kind of have like the zebra patterning on their back so been interesting kind of seeing those coming around um we the the thought is that they're older hen mallards that are losing their estrogen production and so that's causing them to kind of take on more testosterone and then they gain more drake characteristics and it was kind of cool this year because a guy sent me a picture and he had one that was banded and it was, it was like a full-on zebra sprig with a band. And so the band came back. It was like 12 years old that we banded as a hatchier female bird. So it was like, damn, that theory has some weight to it, you know? So it's pretty cool checking those out. I mean, if anyone's listening and they want to do a master's project, man, zebra sprig. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. So that so so it just uh, – it's, it's several down there. So it just it's – it's an older hen pintail, and it starts to lose estrogen – Pumps more testosterone. We had somebody on. Who was that? That the, uh, uh, wicked wings. Yes, um, he saw that with a mallard, I believe. Yeah, mallards do it Travis too. Smith. Um, we just don't, for whatever reason, we're coming across these pintail just more and more and more. It's crazy. So yeah, I don't know if they're hermaphrodite, like a true hermaphrodite, or if it is them losing, you know, their um, the estrogen and the whole testosterone takeover stuff. It'd be cool to do some genetic sampling on them or something, but we haven't gotten there yet. The guy, um, the guy, Travis Smith, Wicked Wings. He's on. He's on Insta. Takes extra excellent pictures. They shot that bird this right. year. He shot it at the end of the year. He'd he been watching Caitlin, didn't he? Yeah, called it Caitlin, and had been checked. But he chased her for four or five years, or him, or Shim, or whatever it was. But it was yeah. a, it was a mallard that did the same thing. Now you've got yeah. on your picture. You got you're banding some shovelers. Yeah, we come across them every once in a while. <laughs> How many shovelers do you ban? 
so we don't target them. We we typically get shovelers in our preseason pintail banding, so they kind of come down a little early with some of the some of the pintail early, and they just uh, that that time of year. So that project we're using rocket nets, but we're not using bait. Um, if you think about it, in the valley here, everybody's starting to flood up that time of year. And so there's food is abundant. There's food everywhere. Every pond has food in it. Everything's getting freshly flooded. So they're not really um, particular on food, but they're particular on loafing. So they, they tend to loaf on these big, long islands. Or um, we've kind of over the years, we've created some like rocket netting sites, more or less, where we just have them mow it out really nice and neat for our nets to fit on. And uh, yeah, the shovelers, they stack up there with the um, with the pintail and they get caught in the nets with them. And uh you know, it's every year is different. One year, I think we caught over 120, um, but generally it's just a handful. You know, 20 or 30 a year. Shooting a banded shoveler is another trophy. It's it's, it's on my bucket yeah, list. Yeah, we we might have put some GPS uh, transmitters on a few too. Oh, so now even, now you're really you need to be targeting shovelers, folks. <laughs> There's not yeah. going to be a shoveler one next year now, that makes it past the the, the, the spinners. What's the far? There's, okay, there's other, plenty of them out there. Other than Russia, which other? Uh, how many birds go far east that y'all have banded? You know, not not a lot of them, but we definitely get them trickling over there. I mean, we've had them Texas, Kansas, um, you know, Arkansas. They they definitely get around. Um, most people don't really understand the dynamic of of why birds will switch flyways, but like ducks, right? They they pair up every year with a different mate potentially where geese are mating with the same mate every year, right? So they're traditionally going down to the same winter grounds. They're going up to the same breeding grounds. Well, if a duck, you know, if a male duck, a female is going to go and, and nest in the same general location that she was born, and then she's going to keep going back to that gen- same general location more or less throughout her life, right? Well, a male, whoever he pairs up with is where he ends up with the hen, you know? So if you have a hen that nests in Saskatchewan that's in California and pairs up with a California mallard, he's going to follow her up to Saskatchewan. Well, he just went from a California mallard, you know, to a central flyway mallard, more or less, because he's probably going to join up with a group of dudes that are going to head down the central flyway. And so that's why you tend to get more males shifting flyways than females. So it's it's pretty interesting. So I'm going to see if I got this right. The males after when, when fall rolls around, they follow other males down the flyway. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they more or less join um, like we call them bachelor groups. And so... So the, 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 the male duck is a really bad dad, right? He, uh, he goes up, he does his duty, he, he, you know, impregnates the female, gets her all hopped up, she goes and lays the eggs. As soon as she starts incubating, that, that male's typically gone. He, he usually bails and his dad duties are over. And what they do is they, they join these big um, bachelor groups and they, they hang around for a while. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you see um hens getting off a nest if there's any drakes around they they're on her ass quick and they harass the shit out of her um and stress them out pretty bad um but they form these big bachelor groups and then so you have a bunch of these adult males that get together and then they go and molt right so they molt before the females because the female's still busy raising the young raising the brood um so like when we do our preseason pintail trapping we're catching 90 percent adult male pintail so those are all pintails that were up there, did their whole thing, and then they booked out, came down to California, and left. You know, left the kids and the wife up in <laughs> you know, up in Prairie, Canada. So that that answers the question. Uh, a couple podcasts ago, Jeff said, "I want." There's so many Drake pintails here right now. I don't know why that is, but I thought that uh, a duck 
we're, we're mates for life. So that's what's going on down here is we just got all the Drake pintails right now. Yeah, I mean, and you know, the with the pintail, it's a different, a little bit different too, because the the Drake to hen ratio is a little bit higher. So the hens are, you know, hen pintail get pretty much hammered on the nest, um, pretty hard, and so um, you you have more or less a skewed age or a sex ratio. So there's more, a lot more um, Drake pintails to hen pintails. So I, the last I heard, it was like a five five to one, four to one ratio. I so believe that pretty significant. Now geese, the male will like if the female has to leave the nest, won't the male like kind of protect her and make sure like the eggs don't get fucked with or you know she can go do her things? Ducks aren't that way, you say? Yeah, no, ducks aren't. Uh, some, I mean, this is generally speaking, you know, right, there's right, definitely right. some that stick around and help out, but for the most part, yeah, once once that hen starts incubating, um, they're they're more or less done with their dad duties and they. They'll stick around like the same pond, you know, that the, the hen will come back to get water on her breaks and stuff. But, yeah, they're they're not following her to the nest. They're not protecting her or doing any of that. But, yeah, the geese will definitely stick around and actually help. Uh, geese are much better dads. You know, they stick around and help take care of the kids. So Mallards are a bunch of damn Democrats. When, we got dem- ducks are Democrats <laughs> and geese are Republicans. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> um, now, are all species of ducks like that or just mallards? And pintails. And pintails. Um, it's mostly all of them, yeah. I'm sure there's some, uh, I can't think of any on the top of my head, but I'm sure there's some that are more um, monogamous, you know, that have like that lifetime bond. And, and mallards will do it too. You know, like why not? It's a successful breeding strategy. If you you bred with a female and you had a successful offspring, like why wouldn't you breed with her again? Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely known that ducks don't, you know, mate. Uh, they mate seasonally, not not monogamous like uh, like geese. Now, I bet ruddy ducks are lifetime mm-hmm. maters. Some, somebody, um, <laughs> we had somebody on. We have so many people I can't always remember. And I think they were hunting on the East Coast, and they were talking about golden eyes or some. There's some species of duck that we don't have here that early in the season they shoot just males or just females, mm-hmm. and, they, and they migrate before. I think it was golden eyes. Either a hen golden eye migrates way before the drake does, or it's another species. But it was an East Coast duck that we don't have. And I can't remember what it was. Maybe in the yeah. I mean, traditionally, the, like I said, it's the males coming down first, and then the females are sticking around until uh, those ducks can fly, and then they can all move. But then, you know, the female has to put in that extra time to raise the young, and then she still has to go molt. So they they tend to stay a lot longer uh, farther north, I'd imagine. Another question about banding: Have you ever banded a sandhill crane? Nope, I have not. I want to know how the hell they do that because them some bitches will fight you. Mean bastards. Yeah, uh, from what I know, they do shoot nets over them, but you have to be real. You have to have special nets that have like a strong, a longer skirt on them, so that it kind of keeps them down. And uh, yeah, I mean, man, I've I've banded like the large Canada, the Western Canada geese that we have, and those are the toughest birds uh, for us. I mean, it's a wrestling match trying to trying to get a band on those suckers. So yeah, I can't imagine trying to get a band on a crane or a swan. You'll catch a beak upside the head. Have you ever crane hunted before? No, I haven't. Oh. Let's go. The, yeah, anytime. They, anytime. they won't let us in California, man. Do y'all, ha- do y'all have a lot of them? Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Yep. Why won't they let y'all hunt them? Uh, emotional politics. That's the best answer I can give you. And they're mean. They like they're mean little. They're not even good looking. So emotions. Like a swan, I can see. You know, that's kind of majestic in this flying animal but a crane it's just it's ugly it's gray got a red head they're mean as shit shoot every one of them 
people people love their cranes, man. There, uh, there's all kinds of. There's a crane festival out here. There's all kinds of stuff, man. It's uh, it'll it'll never happen in California that I'm aware of. I've seen videos in Florida where, like, at the um, retirement villages and stuff, them some bitches are just walking around people's front yards. Yeah, they're just they're like a pet almost, a winter pet for them. Yeah, they're mean. Well, yeah, it's like the the geese. You know, it cracks me up when you see those YouTube videos. Uh, people getting like blocked out of a store because a goose is like cackling at them or something. And it's like, man, grab that sucker by the neck and get on with your day. No shit. Ring its neck, throw it down the produce aisle and move on. Did, did, right? you, <laughs> did you see the video of the golf of the golfer? It might just be pictures. And he like fucking this goose comes yeah. right in over him and he just ass over tea kettle his, over his Yeah, back. he got his ass kicked by a goose. Yeah, that was hilarious. Uh <laughs> I don't know those golf course geese. I think they're on steroids or something. So they're not no, like they're, the ones no, out here. In they're the no wild. tougher than the ones we got to ban. They're, they're they're tough though. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But once you once you grab them the right way, they're pretty much not going to do nothing to you. We had a goose land. Andy was by sophomore, junior in high school, and we had a goose land on our football field. It was a real cloudy, misty night, and they were big migration coming through. And a little Canada landed, but its neck was dislocated or something. It was it was it had a, something was wrong with it. And it landed like on the forty yard line. Well, Zach at that time was probably eight or nine years old, and I, I hollered him. I said, "Go get that goose." And he didn't. The guy's with me. He goes, "Tell him not to ring its neck." Not because you know, hell, he's just used to hunting. He's gonna grow its neck. Ring it. Do not have him ring its neck with all them people watching. So he ran behind the fence and then rung its neck where nobody could see him. But I could just see Zach picking him up on the fifty yard line, ringing its neck, and then people would have shit all over themselves. Them non hunters. <laughs> Thank God you two yeah. wasn't around. So what is the best way to grab one of these big-ass geese? Uh, usually, I mean, the first thing is you got to control their head and their wings, you know. So usually usually I'll grab them, grab them by the wings, kind of control their wings first, kind of in a bear hug, and then use my uh, elbow or arm to kind of corral their head off to the side. Uh, it's, it's pretty funny, man. I don't know how they know, but these geese, they know, like, your sensitive areas. And so a lot of the times – They'll actually go for like your nipples, man, when you're trying to get them, and it's freaking hilarious. But like, if you don't know about it, and like some new person's there, it's like, dude, they'll they'll get you, man, if you're not paying attention. Do you get a lot of women volunteering for this for this position? Yeah, there's there's a lot that are helping with it. Yeah, we do when we do the goose drives. It's like a big. Um, a big effort with our state biologist, California waterfowl. We send a crew up to help, and then you know just other random people that have been helping for years go out and do it together. Geese are giving titty twisters out there. There's going to be a dude that gets a nipple ring ripped out one of these days. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because you can tell the the new people they don't know how to hold the birds right, and so their their forearms just get scratched to hell. Yeah, and you can you know you're sitting down eating dinner at night and you just see their arms just torn up, and it's just it's funny. They look like they're a cutter or something, you know? A cutter. Hey, what what, <laughs> what do uh you had a picture of Eurasian widgeon? How often do you see them? And are you seeing them more and more? Uh, yeah, we see them more and more generally every year in our postseason. We're usually catching a handful of them. Um, yeah, we've been seeing them more and more. It's pretty exciting. Last year, um, I talked our partners into putting in some, uh, GPS transmitters on a pair of Eurasian Widgeon. And, uh, it was pretty cool. They were, they were definitely paired up. We kind of followed them up into, into Canada. They were up in Alberta. Then we, we lost, uh, we think that the battery went out on the hen, which sucks because that would have been really valuable information to see if she was actually nesting up in Canada or if she actually was going somewhere else. Um, and the drake actually lasted a lot longer. He went up, 
through Canada. He went all the way over to Alaska and we're like, oh my gosh, is he going to go over to, you know, the old world? Is he going to do it? And then he, <laughs> he circled back and came back down to British Columbia. And then that's when his, his transmitter petered out too. So, um, pretty cool watching them, but yeah, we're seeing more and more of them. Um, we usually catch them. We've banded quite a few over the years. It's pretty cool. Uh, we had a, we had a transmitter with a Eurasian widget name on it this year and we just never, never had one under the net. Um, they were around. I mean, we don't set up for Wigeon, but I was real tempted to go set up and try and get that transmitter on one, but we, it just didn't happen this year. Dude, now, I've never seen a picture of a female Eurasian Wigeon because everybody has a picture. It's a Drake. Do the female Eurasians look much different than the American? Yeah, um, not really. I mean, they, they're, they're a little bit darker. They have like a little more of a... a a brownish kind of uh, tinge to them. Um, there's a spot here in California. Um, there's a viewing platform you can go to, and you can see Eurasian widgeon there every single day. And you can see when they're, you know, you can watch the body characteristics of the male and tell that he's paired up with the female. And you can see, um, you can see the difference a little bit. It's hard. Um, the real, the only way to really tell. Um, I made a video about it. I think it was on Instagram or YouTube, but you actually have to look like in the armpit of the duck and on a, on an American widgeon, the armpit there, it's called the auxiliary feathers underneath. It's all like pure white. And on a Eurasian widgeon, it's all kind of brown, speckly kind of salt and pepper color. So that's, that's the real way to tell, um, the females to be a hundred percent. So I'm sure some females get shot and people don't realize that's what they've shot then. Yeah, I mean, so we do. Are you guys familiar with the Wing Bee, the parts collection survey? No, no. I'm not. Where you, uh, they select like hunters throughout the flyway and you clip off a wing and you send it into the biologist. Yes, I am aware of that. I just we, didn't know what it was called. We, yeah, so then we age and sex the wing and then we use that to kind of help predict the harvest on the birds. Well, every year in the Pacific flyway, when we go to the Wing Bee, we always come across Eurasian widgeon and it's always the, uh, when you're doing the widgeon, if you if you do the you do a Eurasian widgeon and you you miss it because you didn't flip the feather over, then you have to buy a bottle of alcohol. So that's the way it works <laughs> at the wing bee up there. But um, yeah, we get them um, a lot, and people probably don't realize it at all because uh, they don't they don't know to check. They just think they shot a, a hand widgeon. Now, how long will the batteries in those geo trackers stay uh, active? So there's, there's a solar panel on them that charges them. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of has a self charging, um, uh, thing on it, but we've had them last, I think this is our fourth year and we've had them, we've got some, I believe still working all four years. So, um, up to four years, uh, typically though, they start having problems after a couple of years and you know, the batteries just stop recharging or something's going on with the technology, but it's, it's getting, the technology is getting better and better on these things and the transmitters are getting smaller and smaller. I can only imagine what the first one looked like. Like it had to be this huge looking thing with radio wires sticking out and port. Yeah, into well, they, they used to surgically implant them too. So they used to implant them in the bird and then just have an antenna sticking out. But that was that was more for the radio stuff, where you'd have to actually go out with a radio beacon and, and find the birds. How? What would the? I mean, that would have to kill a lot of birds, wouldn't you think? Having to cut them open like that with infection and stuff you know yeah they're pretty i mean the ducks are pretty tough you know for the most part but yeah i mean that's definitely part of, you know part of all this research and stuff is it's definitely invasive you know i'm not going to sit here and say putting a backpack on a duck isn't <laughs> going to affect it at all it's definitely going to affect its body condition you know its survival all that stuff um 
but you know we're doing it on so few ducks and we're getting such valuable um i mean we can get information every five minutes on these birds which is just insane you know like i can sit on my phone and every five minutes you know you're getting a new point i mean it's just crazy the data that's there um and so just the the risk you know the we're not putting them on thousands of birds you know and, and they're definitely um the the value is there to to learn all this information they have in the last five years they have banded here i think they were banded here again the other day really i think a couple of weeks ago they did and um they put uh radio collars on speckle bellies and it's a geo tracker and we've seen them twice i saw one the other day about a month ago and um <clears throat> justin had a picture of one on this year we saw it was on our fields a couple of times and um but nobody ever shoots them yeah i mean i don't yeah. i don't think i think someone said one of the birds that was banded here got shot in kansas the, the, so yeah, those are those are uh, GPS or GSM trackers. They're not a geo tracker is a completely different um, thing, but yeah. The, so those are those are GPS and they actually ping off a cell phone tower. So we ju we just put the same ones out on some white fronts on Friday. Um, same thing last Friday. So do you, do y'all use the gray collars on them? Uh, ours are painted like a little red, a more red color. These are gray so almost. Well, you can't, a little bit. Yeah, this yeah. is the same way. It might be the same color, but you can't see nothing. I mean, you can't, it's hard. They're hard to see. We're back yeah, along. Yeah, they're hard to see. That's kind of the point of them, right? Like, you right. know. Yes. You know, like traditionally when you put a collar on, you want this big, bright thing that you can recite with a spotting scope or binoculars. Well, that's kind of shifted now to put these, these, uh, more more of a camouflage collar on that we don't need to see. We just need it to stay charged so that we can see it on our phones wherever it goes. You know, so it's kind of changing the whole collar game. This is the honest to god truth. In the mid nineties here, we used to winter a lot of geese. I, I would guess a half million to a million birds were here between our four or five playa lakes, and there wasn't a lot of hunting pressure on them. And in the evening time, or even in the morning, I could drive around and I could see a rack of geese. And I could see net collars in every rack. Every rack yeah. had net collars. And hell, we shot 40, 50 net collars one year here. And we very seldom see a net collared goose in our area. And I know the Central Flyway, they don't they do not do as much banding as they used to. And um, But we just we don't kill net collars. But I think what you said is the reason why, too. Nowadays, they're using more of the, the satellite type cell phone type bands and they were back in the day when they didn't have that technology yeah yeah and i mean uh you know band hunting plays a factor into it too you know you have these big basically targets more or less and uh i mean you guys are aware people are just obsessed with bands and yeah. so people will go out of their way to try and shoot a collared goose and so that you know that's it's more or less taken away a resource for us biologists but um you know we're just we can use these GPS collars now and do less less collars and get more information. So it's kind of, in my opinion, it's almost trending into not doing those big um, target collars anymore, more or less, and kind of transitioning back to like this high technology collars. And then like you were kind of referencing like the geo, the geo bands, and those are kind of the same idea, um, but it's it's using daylight and you're using daylight um, patterns to detect where these birds are moving. And these are a lot cheaper units, but the problem with them is you have to get the unit back to download the data off of it. So it's basically like a band 
And then if you get the data, you get the band back, you can get all kinds of data off of them. So that's also a new technology that's really kind of starting to gain some traction too. And that's a lot less intrusive. You know, it's it's more or less a zip tie, a, a leg tarsal band with a little tiny unit zip tied to it. And so that's a lot less intrusive than these big giant collars or backpacks. That's interesting. Okay, coots. Do they migrate just at nighttime? Uh, I, I assume so. I don't know. I always Ooh. hear all these stories. I I'm not sure. I, I'm, I mean, my understanding is they, they fly extremely high and they migrate. Um, I've never seen like a group of coots come in, so I don't know. I guess they do do it at night. I don't know. You're a biologist. They and you're, they're there. you're a biologist and you're telling me I assume. <laughs> I figured you would know yeah, this I answer. I can't ever get an answer on People this. Get, I banded one coot in my life just to, just to do it, and I got... It was pretty funny. Did anybody shoot it and call it in? No, no. There's way too many coots for that. Those are probably lifetime monogamous birds right there. The fucking coot <laughs> never leaves her side ever. I don't know. I'd, I'd think the opposite. They're in just like these big old groups that just go, <laughs> out, you know. <laughs> but but they just show up overnight yeah. through here. I've no I've never seen them flying. I've never seen a like every other duck out there. There's a flock of ducks, and you start. They're there on the lake. You don't see them flying into it. They're there. Yeah. So you can't give me any coot information either then? No, I don't know. I've, I haven't looked into the whole coot migration thing. I've heard that, though, that they fly at night and stuff. I've just never given it much thought. They're the ghost They're, na they're nasty little boogers, too. We had a bunch yeah. of coon asses out here, and uh, they just mowed the coots down, and they were so happy. They wanted all the livers gizzards. and gizzards, and it was <laughs> not fun in the picking shed that day. So uh, Yeah, they're... They're a pain in the ass when we catch them in the nets. They got their little claws out, and they're like little kung fu fighters, man, trying to fight you <laughs> off. Did you see the video? I think Split Read posted it. It's a, I think it's a frog. has a coot by the head, and it's trying to digest it, and they, they end up, and the coot's alive. They end up taking it right out of the frog's mouth. I'll see if I can't find it. Huh. Uh, I haven't seen that one. Um, what about buffle heads? Boy, my guys up north left shooting buffle heads. Have you banded many of those? No, uh, very, very rarely they'll get in our wood duck boxes, and I've never banded one, but um, they'll, they'll nest in a nesting cavity, and in some parts of our state we'll come across them, but I, I don't see much of them. We don't, we don't really catch them in any kind of our traps. They're, they're you know, like a diving deep water bird. They're just not around um, the dabbling ducks that we're usually going after. Any of the off birds you just don't see often? Like we, in 30 years in business, we've killed a lot of birds. I wouldn't even have a clue i i have people all the time well what about your logs i don't keep log i never have kept of you know of how many birds we shoot and i couldn't tell you how many birds we shot this year or the year before or anything i just don't do it but yeah we've shot every species of ducks and a lot of them and we've killed banded gadwalls widgeons mallards pintails blue wing teal and green wing teal and redheads and i think in texas a redhead is the second most retrieved band there is yeah i believe it yeah all along the Texas coast. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hot spot for them for sure. So do you get a hunt very often? Oh yeah. Yep. I'm a big hunter. Uh, just, you know, 30 minutes from my house, just go out and hunt the rice blinds and yeah, I love it. Are you hunting private property or, or uh, public? Yeah. I've kind of, you know, I used to, when I started, I started hunting the public refuges, you know, within my house, there's probably 10 refuges within an hour drive. Um, and the, the hunting can be really good there. It's just real competitive. It can be real um, crowded, you know, frustrating. But there, there's birds there to be had. Um, and then just the last few years, you know, I've kind of transitioned into just hunting like the private rice ground more or less. So I, I lease a rice blind and 
hunt out of there and I got my, my little spot to go. And then I also help, uh, manage a little rice club and we've got, um, 14 blinds that rotate through that club. So I hunt out there quite a bit as well. Now I'm not familiar with all of California state politics, just the federal stuff, but I'm concerned with states like Oregon and California, some of the East coast states, Illinois that are predominantly blue. Do you worry about losing hunters rights there in the future with the way things are going? Oh yeah. I mean, they're, they're chipping away at it every chance they get. They just tried to pass a law to ban bear hunting throughout the whole state, which was just, you know, as a biologist, it just offends the crap out of me because they don't, they don't care about the science. They don't care anything about all the work, you know, they're paying bear biologists to give them data and they just more or less throw it out the window. You know, all this, it's all just, you know, emotional politics. And it's really, it's really frustrating, man. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of that stuff does start in states like you mentioned, you know, California, Oregon, all these feel good things. And people are like, oh, sucks. I, ha ha. I don't live in California. Well, right. dude, that stuff's creeping out everywhere. Yes, man. Everybody's got to start paying attention to this stuff. And, uh, you know, when that crap pops up in California, we need everybody on board to shut it down or it's I mean, it's only a matter of time before it goes other places. So California is the catalyst for the rest of the country. And if you look at it, Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, all cal- both in California. One of them's running yep. the House. One of them is going to be president probably within three or four months, probably the right things are going. <laughs> just because Joe Biden is not cognitive. I'm not being rude about anything. It's just that's he cannot make decisions. She will be president before long. And everything's coming from California and both out of San Francisco, and that is really scary. But it does concern me all across the United States in these blue areas. I'm afraid we're going to see – some kind of executive order or any or, or, or hell a parliamentary procedure where they're going to take hunting off of federal lands. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's a tough subject, man. I mean, uh, living in California, you know, you know, a lot of there's been a lot of talk of trying to move out of state, and you know, but it's you know we got to stand and fight here too. You know, you can't just keep moving and uh, and think it's going to change elsewhere. You know, but. Um, it's really frustrating because where I live, I mean, I'm in Northern California, you know, it's not, there's Trump flags everywhere there. Everybody has an American flag. I mean, it's a, uh, it's country up here. And then there's like this small bubble of LA and San Francisco that basically control the entire state, you know, and it's really frustrating, you know, and, and that happens everywhere. I mean, you guys probably saw it in Texas with the votes and, and all closer. that stuff, you know, it's just, you're not getting the representation of your lifestyle you know, up here is a lot different than the lifestyle in LA or, or the Bay area. So yeah, it's frustrating. I don't know. I don't know what the fix is. I don't think anybody does. Well, it's just, I, they don't believe biology uh, evidently. I mean, there's nothing right. else that I can think about, you know, cause you got, these people are also the same ones that are, you know, you got men's and girls sports all of a sudden, and they just have to be the anti-biology party. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I think a lot of this stuff, you know, most people, like, I find myself doing this all the time, right? You get in your own little echo chamber, you know, and, like, yep. I hear all this stuff that's pro-Trump, pro-this, but that's what I'm listening to, you know, and it's, you know, the way that they've polarized the everything right now is you're on one side or the other, and there's really no in-between, and um, it's really, to me, it's just getting back to that in-between, like, if I'm talking to somebody that's anti-hunting, they think it's the worst thing in the world, like, I don't care, I don't want to waste my time with you, I'm not, I don't have any... I'm not going to change your mind, right? It's right. the person in the middle who's like, oh, yeah, I've thought about hunting. Like, what's it like? And, you know, you 
They're like, is it like the YouTube video I saw of a guy just murdering birds? And you're like, dude, that's not hunting. Like hunting is going out, you know, with your kids, your family, your friends, having a good time, you know, respecting the animals, respecting the game. And I think really just just getting getting the center, you know, I don't care about the far right or the far left, you know, like concentrate on the people in the middle that are kind of in between and just work on uh, just showing hunting. And that's kind of my whole thing with the biology stuff is just trying to use that the positive biology, that conservation and helping promote hunting and that side of it in a good way. Cause I mean, all of our more or less, most of our funds are coming from hunters, you know, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I get a lot of pushback from other biologists because they're like, Oh, you're creating band envy and you shouldn't be showing all those pictures and you shouldn't be doing all this. And it's like the hunters, you know, we're asking, I'm a hunter myself. You know, a lot of biologists aren't hunters. A lot of these managers aren't hunters and they, they could care less about a hunter, you know? And so I'm, I'm kind of in the middle, right? I'm a biologist and a hunter and I like to share. And fortunately the company I work for California waterfowl agrees too. And they, you know, they're like, yeah, share what you're doing. It's awesome. Keep it going. And, you know, like I've, I've been told to take down posts before about some of the projects I've helped with. And, you know, that kind of stuff just gets frustrating, but I just keep chugging along, doing what I can do, and uh, just trying to promote that um, the bridge between biologists and hunters. You know, like I don't think it's a very good relationship most of the time, and um, so I'm just trying to share what we do and kind of try and bring that back to duck hunters. You know, and let them just kind of hold biologists accountable. I guess. Why do you think it's not a good relationship between the hunters and the biologist? Well, I just, you know, I hear a lot of hunters that don't trust biology, you know, like right now there's a lot of talk about, oh my God, these pintail limits are ridiculous. There's a bunch of idiots running this stuff. And, you know, it's just hunters like I went out and I saw a million pintails, so I should be able to shoot more. And like, they just, the, in my opinion, there hasn't been a good conversation with biologists and hunters and, you know, just like keeping it just like a lot of the banding operations, you know, like a lot of there's banding operations all over the place, but a lot of them, like they won't let volunteers help. They don't want, they don't want people to know what they're doing, where they're doing it, any of that stuff. So, um, yeah. You would think though, if you're trying to like drive and get people excited about a sport that you would want as many volunteers as you could get for some of these projects. Cause that might get somebody out in the field. Like, you know, Hey, maybe they shoot a band and like, you know what? I helped ban that bird or, or something like that. You figure that would help promote our sport just a little bit more. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and I, that's kind of an avenue um, that a lot of people can use kind of the R3 initiative, you know, that a lot of places are pushing the retain, recruit, reactivate hunters. Um, but God, I was just listening to one of your guys' podcasts. You're like, what are these damn biologists counting? Who do they that think was they Jeff. are? They don't know what the hell they're talking that about. That was Jeff Stanfield over there. And I'm yeah, stick with I my mean, words. I, I'm not, I'm just kind of busting your balls, but <laughs> I mean, that stuff happens all the time, you know? And it's like, just that understanding, that communication, you know, just that gap. I mean, there's all kinds of cool research that's out now that, you know, the they're looking at changing a lot of the models and all that stuff. So it's just, uh, just that, I don't know. I so, had a personal reason to say that and I stick with it. It was yeah, very, it's very stupid what they're doing here for us, for, 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 for where we are pushing the season back two weeks is no good it's for fucking us dumb. because we get those yeah. specs so early. We get them mid October. We can hunt November one. But now we're hunting November 14th. We're going to February 14th. Nothing here. I want to touch on something you said earlier, and it made a lot of sense. For the people that aren't hunters, I understand where they – hunters are the best conservationists in the world. We care more about game than anybody does. But I understand – when I try to explain that to someone that doesn't hunt, they're like, yeah, sure you do. You go around killing them. 
and 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 I see their side of that point of uh, they don't understand the love and passion that we have for waterfowl. I didn't. I don't hardly shoot any ducks or geese all year long. I don't care yeah. about shooting ducks or geese. I wouldn't mind going on a good field mallard shoot or widgeons, um, but I just don't care about hunting them no more. I love them stuff, but that's the, the where I'm in in my life. I've shot tons and tons and tons of birds, but right. I do understand where the non-hunter that's never been exposed cannot understand or appreciate yeah, they, the birds you know, like they we see do. It, they see it as like, oh, you're going to kill ducks, and it's like, yeah, but what other wildlife is benefiting from that habitat that we've put out there for ducks you know like you've got insects you've got um d- certain snakes are benefiting from all that habitat i mean it's just the the all of wildlife benefits from hunters targeting ducks uh, but that also you know helps other wildlife species big time yeah that's that's exactly right it's kind of like uh i lost my train of thought for a minute oh i know what it was people bitch about tony vandemore oh my god they're they're hot water cropping and they're all this flooded corn and blah blah this how many ducks do they really kill that they they feed all year? One percent, three percent, five percent? They're doing yeah. a, they're 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 creating an environment, and it's not just yeah. ducks. And maybe they're shooting just mallards. What about all the other species that are there that never get bothered? Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. It's beneficial. Yeah. I saw I saw a video today of a guy that was on our podcast page. I believe he was going to work and he saw a deer trapped in a fence. He stopped, got out, freed the deer, and the deer ran off, and the deer was fine. He also yeah. hunts deer, but he cares and loves wildlife. And the other side just does not understand because they don't have that bond and connection. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So let's get into the pintail numbers real quick. Will they ever change? <laughs> what are yes. we, What are we waiting to see? Because we got a lot of pintails here. It sounds like you got a lot. When are they going to go up? I I wish I had a good answer. Um, unfortunately, it's. Uh, relying upon the federal government, which takes yeah, we know takes time and <laughs> takes process, right? And so uh, they're currently in the process. They fi- they've formed like a bunch of these working groups, you know, within the flyways, and the the steps are starting. The problem is, is that with the COVID restrictions, they weren't able to fly the survey last year, and it's looking like they m- might not fly the survey again this year. So it's going to be really hard to change any regulations without any current data. Um, I would imagine not this next season, but I would, I would really, really hope to see some kind of change coming in that the next duck season, not the one coming up and in two seasons from now. So 2022, 23 yeah. season, yeah. you know, yeah. when, when I was a kid and I'm 53 years old, we could shoot 10 pintails a day. You're on the point yeah. system, hundred point system. We shoot, we could shoot 10 a day. I don't remember yeah. ever shooting 30 pintails in a day. I remember yeah. some 40 and 50 mallard hunts, but I don't ever remember shooting 30 pintails, but we could. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, like California, man, it's uh, it's the wintering ground for pintail. I think the 30% of the continent's pintail winter here in California, which is, you know, it's insane amount of birds. And y'all are and, on uh, one? What's that? Y'all are on one also? Yeah, we're on one pintail, yeah. And so, I mean, you guys, I'm sure you guys know it's uh, – you know, the, the numbers were, they were up to like 6 million, I think, in the 70s. And then we kind of had the droughts of the 80s. And all bird populations kind of dipped down. Pintail dipped down, too. And then we had water come back in the 90s. And those, all other dabbling ducks went up except for pintail, right? And a lot of that's just the habitat practice that they're doing up in Canada now. They're doing, uh, we call it no-till farming. 
So in the after they harvest the field, they just go through and they leave all the stubble up. Well, that stubble is attractive to pintail, so they go try and nest in there. And then in the springtime, you know, that farmer comes back and mows his field down and, you know, all those eggs get lost in the in the fields. And so, you know, we've had restrictive uh, restrictive limits on pintail for, what, 25 years now? Yep. And their population has more or less more or less stayed the same, right? It's not doing any big fluctuations. Um so a lot of that's based off habitat in the in the nesting area, and so um, a lot of the current research that's out there is suggesting that we can have a, a lot higher harvest on pintail, and the population is not going to be affected. So um, all, all that stuff's on the table now. They're looking at it, and I would I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, definitely, you know, we got to get at least a year of current survey and data just to kind of get back on track with catching the trends and stuff, but two years i think we'll see some changes and hopefully it'll go up i'm hoping it'll go up to three and then we'll Ooh. do that for maybe four or five years and see if anything changes you know i mean that's kind of how this adaptive harvest management works right you're supposed to mm -hmm. do cer certain things at a slow pace and see if it's affecting anything and the restricted pintail seasons haven't done much to bring the population back right so let's um especially when like i said earlier if we've got skewed sex ratios um we could easily harvest more drake pintail and i don't know how it is in texas but usually you know early october it's pretty hard to tell the drakes from the females because they're still in you know their alternate plumage and they're not in their breeding plumage yet but november december you know they're november definitely they start coloring out and it's i mean it's real easy to tell drakes yeah. from hen so having a you know a three drake uh three drake one hen um you know limit would be could be real real possible in the future i'd imagine a biologist with a lot of common sense at hunts did you hear that Andy? yeah and yeah. i mean you would figure that that would be kind of you would that would be the norm in your industry but i don't know what it if if so many guys are just setting their ways and this is i don't think like you said i think it all goes back to the guys don't hunt i think most biologists yeah, I mean, don't hunt. there's a lot of guys that don't hunt and unfortunately like everything else you know there's a lot of egos involved too you know right. so um, just like anything, you know, you got to mitigate all that, all that stuff. So a couple years ago, we were at two pintails. We were two years ago. What happened ago. To, to what happened? What did the numbers do? I mean, why did so they, they go back down? The way that the way it works is they have a matrix. And when, when the numbers fall within a, a, a section of that matrix is when it would shift from two to one. And so, uh, we were at two for a while and then it fell into the one category and that's just the current model that they have. And uh, so they're, I mean, the, the whole goal is to revise the model with updated data and um, basically just allow a, a higher harvest on pintail. And I think it'll happen. We got to just give it time. That was also. There, the, there's the, definitely pushback too on the other side, you know, like um, folks are like, this population's not at its long-term average. Like you can't increase the harvest. And, you know, so there's, there's definitely pushback, but I mean, if you look at some of the new data that out out there, there's a master student from a, um, um, what's it called Reno University Nevada Reno that I mean his his project's insane and he's basically like going through the modeling and like showing how the the model is not predicting how they expect it to predict and um, a lot of that information you know is out there and hopefully um, they'll see it and look at it and hopefully change some things so. You know, a lot of that too. The year they they done the change was when Dakota's flooded real bad. Yeah, and and so a lot of birds nested in North Dakota and South Dakota that didn't get counted. That's right, it, and what that's happens when it too changed. is um, 
when the traditionally when the pintails shift farther north, they're not as successful nesting. And so when you have either um, drier years or whatever, the, when the birds actually nest farther north, they're not as successful. So that also has a lot to go into that model that they predict the the population. So, you know, I'll tell you another thing. I think too that, I, that this is just me throwing it out there. Blue wing teal. We have a teal season in Texas. Do y'all have that in California in early teal season? No, we don't, dude. We don't get any blue wing teal hardly. I mean, that the only bird I have mounted is a blue wing teal, and it's the only one I've ever shot. We have we have an early teal season here. They're not pretty, but we right. have blue wing teal here. But my question is, why don't we just start having teal season September one and shoot blue wing teal? Because we can't be harvesting that many of them because they get in and out of here before they're they go to Central America. Well, I understand that, but I don't understand what you're. I don't understand what you're trying to say. We we have teal season that starts September fourteenth or seventh or eighth. We get three weeks of it. That'll let you just hunt teal for a whole fucking month of September. It's not going to affect the long term numbers on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not just not familiar with that season at all. I know you guys have it, but I don't know any of the it's, science behind it. It's or three weeks, but the blue wing teal are in and out of here before most season starts. Right. Well, I don't know about that. They weren't here September 1 this last year. It was fucking 110 degrees. But some years we have till here. I'm just saying it, it wouldn't hurt to open it then because those birds are getting in and out of here before anybody hunts them. Most pl- I, 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 would, I, don't think I so. would I would like to know what the blue wing till harvest numbers are on a normal year because most of them are too far south before the regular duck season even starts. Because I, I think know. most of those winter in South America and Central America and Mexico, if I'm right. And that shocks me because I figured in California y'all would have a lot of blue wing teal. No, we get their cousin, the cinnamon teal, more. We don't. We hardly get any. I mean, we're seeing more and more, but um, it's definitely rare to shoot a blue wing teal in California. They kind of stay on the east side of the Rockies for the most part. Now, do the the cinnamon teal that you shoot are they in full plumage, or you shoot them all winter long? Yeah, I mean, uh, they're definitely around if you wanted to target them. Like, you don't really get them in rice country because it's just not the the habitat that they prefer. But if you hunt some of the refuges, I mean, you can go out there and shoot a whole bunch of them. But, yeah, they're they're fully plumed out in, you know, uh, I'd say December, definitely. October, uh, you know, end of October, November, they're definitely fully colored. We banned a ton of them because they breed in California. So we get a bunch of cinnamon teal that we banned um but they're obviously not plumed out when we catch them. But when we do our summer banding, I mean, we're catching hundreds of them every year. That's a that's a trophy duck in Texas. I'm telling you right now. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. always shoot one yeah. or two every year, but nothing nothing yeah. like you get. I'm sure. Um, what about this? Yep. What about the speckle belly numbers? I mean, where are where are they? Are they steady? Are they rising? We get a ton. Yeah, of they're through here. the roof, man. Our our limit's uh, ten on them now, so we can shoot ten a day. We've got a little five day late season on them. Um, they, yeah, their population's just exploding, going through the roof. So uh, we're we're enjoying some real liberal seasons on them right now. Ours is our limit is two, and yep. uh, like you said, the. They're going through the roof. What's crazy about the speckle belly is you hear of them kind of everywhere now, whereas yes. 10, 15 years ago, they were mainly in the central flyway. I mean, there's guys in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, saying five, 10 years ago, they never saw a speckle belly, and they're starting to show up yep. there now. Yep, yeah, they're, they're just doing good up on the breeding grounds, and, uh, you know, a lot of ours are coming from uh, Alaska, so almost yeah. all our birds are coming from the Alaska. We're not getting into, like, that central flyway population and yeah, they're doing great. Um, the habitat up there is pretty consistent, and so it's yeah, they're booming, man. And so uh, when I first started hunting, um, it was it was two birds, and it's gone from two to three to four to six, and now it's up to ten. So, yep. Um, that anytime we shoot a banded speckle belly, that's where it's from. It's from Alaska. 
So really, none, yep, of, yep, none of it. None of it. Yeah. So you hear that, Texas? There's plenty of room for not two. Three, yep. three would be great. Take take the lim- <laughs> take a lesson from California every once in a while. Um, it it just it aggravates me. It aggravates me because they're here. They're here, and you can only shoot two. Then you got to watch them hump your decoys for the rest of the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, I can't think of anything that I haven't that we haven't asked you yet. We appreciate <laughs> you being on here. Been trying to get you on here for a year. Uh, yeah, you're hard to get. Glad you're doing. It worked out. You're doing all these other podcasts. And you're not doing ours. We appreciate you finally setting some time aside for us. Hey, I'm, I'm trying to do them all, man. <laughs> <laughs> you're a popular man. Uh, keep fighting the good fight out there in California. Um, I, I I really enjoy following you on Instagram and uh, keep catching those zebra pintails because those are funny looking creatures. Yeah. Hopefully, we figure out what's going on with those with those things. Yeah, that'd be cool. You know, I had somebody message me that's like a vet, and they said, hey, grab a sample, and we'll do a, a genetic analysis on it. So uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll be better prepared for that next time and give it a try. But, yeah, that banding data is pretty neat. So What's, well, what's we'll weird is that they, like, the traits of a, of a, of a drake come through in yeah. the exact pattern of a drake. So I don't know. The it's genetics, 2020. The genetics there is, is, is it's just weird to me how, like, as testosterone increases potentially in these ducks, like it looks exactly like a a Drake pintail. You figure it would just have something else happen, not that. Yeah, just the genetics, man. Cal- California genetics. Yep, crazy. Or twenty twenty one, I should have said. Hey, r- before we let you go, what about the the sprig on a pintail? Does it grow throughout the year? Do they get? Is that an age thing? It's a uh, it. Um, I mean, it grows throughout the year. So when they molt, right, they drop all their feathers. And yeah. so they molt that feather every year. Um, I've never seen any studies that correlate it to age. Um, it's really tough without any banding data because that's really the only way that you can tell exactly how old a bird is, assuming you caught it as a hatchier bird. I mean, when when we catch an adult pintail, we can basically, all we're saying is that it wasn't born this year. Right. That's all we can say. We right. know it wasn't born this year and it's older than that. How old it is, we, we don't know past that unless it's banded. So so they lose that feather also every year. So every year yes, they start every year when we, catch them in, uh, when we catch them in September, they hardly have any, and then it just slowly gets bigger and bigger throughout the year. Even, you know, hunting them, you know, you get October pintail or just this little nub with a little, you know, you can see that sheath right. on the bottom where they're growing that feather, and then, you know, December, January, it's fully grown in. Now, speckle bellies. I had one more question thought of. The bars, genetics or age? Um, I would think it's more genetics. I've n- I haven't seen anybody correlate it to age either. I mean, uh, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just get like like the like the juveniles. You know, they slick belly, but once they turn two years old or or mature adult, whatever bars yeah. they have, that's the bars they got. I I assume so. I'm not sure though on that entirely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we right. we really appreciate your time, bud. Well, yeah, no, thanks for having me on, man. If you want to come out here and shoot a crane next year, you holler at us. I'm in, man. Sign me up. And come see us. Awesome, bud. Right. Will you be safe out there, and uh, we'll we'll holler at you later, bud. All right, sounds good. Thanks, guys. See Thank you, bud. You. Bye. Very Brian interesting. Huber. Very, very interesting. From what I got to hear, yes, it was. What do you mean, what you got to hear? I was back and forth a couple times. Well, Andy, having children, and you're going to have another one now. Congratulations, no, I'm Andy. I'm not having another one. Um, this is 2021. Mm-hmm. You would not be expecting another one. I'm not expecting another Y'all one. would have to build a new room at your house. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. So mom, it, we had a babysitter lined up, my mother. She has a stomach bug. We're going skiing next week, so even though she's not feeling bad, she still might be contagious. But he's been around me, and I've had a stomach bug. He hadn't bug. been around you. Not close contact, Jeff. Have you not learned anything through what? this fucking quarantine? You know where I think we got our sickness from? Y'all. How? Every time we get sick at our house, it's from y'all. The COVID, the flu, everything. You know what happens is you leave, you go gallivanting around the globe, and your immunities fall off from Texas. That's well, what it is. You got to stay in Texas well, to have Texas immunities. Well, we damn sure got something If you go somewhere. up to North Dakota, then all of a sudden you got, your body doesn't know what to do. It doesn't know what to fight off. Well, Monday, Monday, your son didn't go to school. Yes. And he was at my house Monday afternoon. And all I know He is, wasn't not at your house Monday afternoon. What day did we get home from our trip? Monday. Okay. We went to the track meet Monday. Okay. He came to my house on Tuesday. That one, the little one. No, Reese. Both of them. What did Reese go over there? He for? was in the I come in the house, he was eating snacks, laying on the sofa watching Scooby Doo or something. When I got home from the lodge the other day, Reese was at the house and so was Jesse and so was Jameson was asleep. All three sitting in the living room. Hmm. And then, yeah. Hmm. And then the next day, we're all fucking sick. And Reese had missed school Tuesday. What day did Reese miss school? Monday. Okay. And it was not, it, it, we, he was we got sick. to the bottom of what was going on. What was the bottom of it? He was sick. He didn't go to school. He had a little belly ache. Okay. Well, his and little. And he got to feeling better. Well, so did I. I felt better. Mom was sick, sick. I felt better after. Reese never one vomited. Night. Well, he's younger. So, anyways, but every time we get sick, it's from y'all. <sighs> So I'm blaming y'all. So anyways, let's get off here. Let's get off here, but uh, go follow Brian Huber on Instagram. The birdologist. Birdieologist. Very, very good. He's got 15,000 followers. Well, he's got to be the most popular waterfowl biologist ever. Well, he's got common sense. He does. He does. And I wish everybody was that way. Yep. Because what did he say? The speckle belly numbers are booming. Yep. So give us more. Yep. Give me more. I want more. All right. God bless y'all. Have a great day. Bitches. Go check out all of our great sponsors. Check out Blind Grass if you're tired of brushing your A-frame all the time. Check out Foul Bandits, Athletic Brewing Company, Stanfield Hunting Outfitter, Gundog Outdoors, Dirty Duck Coffee, Dive Bomb Industries, Boss Shot Shells, Pacific Calls, Lucky Duck, Looking Glass Duck Club, Never Forget, 14 Cattle Co. and William & Chris Wines. <laughs>